Let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So before we go any further, I want you to notice three things that Peter tells us here. First, Peter acknowledges that the Christians he's writing to have ended up to be basically second-class citizens wherever they've gone. That's the idea in verse 1 of the words pilgrims and dispersion. Your Bible might say exiles, might say something like aliens scattered abroad. And the idea is that wherever they were, you see that list of weird-looking names in verse 1, those are all places where the Christians were, wherever they were, The believers Peter wrote to were not at home. Even, I think, we can assume if they were technically living in their native lands. The fact that they were now identifying with Jesus Christ made them more like resident aliens than regular citizens. And this, of course, helps us understand why we often might feel this way, even if we're living in our native land, if you happen to be living in your native land. And some of uh, the same kind of issues that we're reading about affect us. And second, look at verse 2. Christians are chosen by God. And you might be familiar with the conversations that Christians have about things like this. I just want to say that as you read on in Peter's letter, it becomes obvious that the reason that he writes this about being chosen, it's not so much to make a point for the sake of winning a theological argument, but to remind the people he's writing to that God wants them. God loves them. And God chose them, even when it seems like a lot of other people aren't very happy with them and maybe don't want them at all. It's no accident that Peter began his letter this way, and I think we need to hear this as a word of God for us and to us. God wants us. If you're a follower of Christ here this morning, you're part of this. God chose us. God loves us. And notice something else in verse 2, that great word, foreknowledge. When God chose us, he knew what he was getting. Nothing surprises him. Nothing throws him off or makes him want to go back on his choice. And that's really good news. And third, notice uh, in verse 5, God's commitment to us is total. He does the full job. He chose us, he chooses us, and then he keeps us. The word in verse 5 has the idea of being guarded. God uses his own power to guard his children. We may be considered exiles or even aliens, like some translations of verse 1 say, but God says we're chosen, and he loves us, and he will keep us, so nothing can ultimately ruin us. Now look at verse 6. Peter says, In this, that is, in this salvation, he's talking about verse 5, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, If need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, 
being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So this is so important. Being chosen by God, being loved by God, being guarded by God's power. None of that means that we won't go through trials. So the way God shows his love for us and the way he guards us is not by keeping difficult things away from us. It's by making sure that those things don't ruin his eternal plan for us. And in fact, he makes sure that all those things actually serve his purposes of making us into the kind of people who can live with him forever and bring him glory when he heals the earth. The Bible says he uses all these things to make us like Jesus, like the king. Look at verse 10. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which the angels desire to look into. Verse 13, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober, And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So in verse 10 now, Peter writes that we have the scriptures to guide us in this life that we're living through through all the things we go through, right? Even what we call the Old Testament was written by men who were guided by the Holy Spirit to help us in the times we're living through. They wrote about Jesus and what he would suffer and the glory that he would experience after his suffering. That's what verse 11 says. And we need to know that because if we follow Jesus, we're going to follow him down the same road. We're going to experience the difficulties the world causes to everyone who's not on board with its program, exactly like Jesus did. And the resurrection of Jesus on the other side of his suffering should always give us the strength that we need to press on. Contemplating the fact that after he was killed, he rose from the dead should always give us the strength that we need to press on. And that's why verse 13 says, gird up the loins of your mind. It means like, get ready and put your mind's work clothes on. Put work clothes on your mind, right? Christians, put your mental pads on. Put your bulletproof vest on for your brain. Put your gloves on. Put your boots on. Gird up your minds, Peter says. And he says in two ways we do that. First, we gird up our minds, our thinking, by taking everything that we're hoping for, everything that gets you through, this is verse 13, and putting all of that onto what you'll receive when Jesus comes back. Peter says, what gets us through? Jesus is coming back. He's going to bring with him everything we need to make this life now worth it. And whatever else God gives us in this life to help us along the way, and he does give us blessings to help us along the way, 
Still, we know that the real reason we're living is for Jesus and what he's bringing with him when he comes. So that way, nothing can ruin your life or destroy your will to live or eliminate your faith in God. And the second way we gird up our minds is by refusing to let our old desires run our life and by choosing holiness instead. That's verse 14 and 15. And Peter says more about that starting in verse 17. If you look at verse 17, he says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver and gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So, if our minds are prepared for action, if our minds are prepared to make it through a hard world, we will fear God throughout everything we go through because we understand what a huge deal it is that Jesus shed his blood so that we could be saved. You see that in verse 18 and 19. And it's possible if you're here today and you don't understand what a big deal that is because you've never heard about Jesus dying for you or maybe just never gave it too much thought, let us tell you today, the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose again is the single most important thing you can ever hear because if you don't hear it and you don't embrace it, and you don't acknowledge that you needed it and that Jesus is Lord, you will face the judgment of God while you're still guilty of your sin. But God loved us and was willing to pay the price for everything we had done so we could be forgiven for our sin and even healed of the things that other people had done to us. The Holy Spirit of God wants you to know this, and he wants you to hear that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and died in your place on the cross to suffer the punishment for your sin and rose again from the dead so that if you trust him for salvation, you can be saved and you can know that you have eternal life in him. And it's not just that you can experience this change individually. It's that God is inviting you into a whole new family and a whole new, a whole new tribe, the Bible talks this way, with a whole new identity. It's what Peter wrote back in the very beginning. You can be part of the people that God chose. And he writes it again down in chapter 2, verse 9. If you look at chapter 2, verse 9. Look at these words. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. At this point in the letter, we're starting to see the burden that was on Peter's heart when he was writing. And again, what's so great about this is that since this is scripture, we're not just hearing a man's heart for the people he wrote to, we're hearing the heart of God for every believer who reads this. We're hearing what God wants to say to us today in Philadelphia at the start of the summer of 2022. First things first, no matter what anyone else says about Christians, verses 9 and 10 are true because that's what God says. You are not what popular opinion says about you. You are a chosen generation. Isn't this amazing? 
You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're not going to hear that on CNN or Fox News. You won't hear this from the White House. You won't hear it from either side of the political aisle or from Disney or from the NFL or the CEO of your corporation. But if you get up in the morning and you sit with your Bible, if you gather with the saints to sing the praises of God and hear the word, if you get together with friends to go out and serve Jesus, you'll hear it from the spirit of God. You are God's special people called out of darkness to proclaim the praises of the one who brought you into the light. Once we had no people, but now we're the people of God. And starting in verse 11, Peter actually applies this for us. Look at verse 11. He says, beloved. Let me just stop right there. There it is again. God loves us. Can you hear the Spirit saying it? And then he says this. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Pause. Peter can't stop writing about this, can he? Our status in the world does not reflect God's love for us. A lot of times Christians get so worried. If the world's angry at us, we must be messing up. But that's just not what the Bible says. Often, Christians end up with the same kind of status as people simply traveling through, right? Sojourners and pilgrims, aliens and foreigners. Why can they say things about Christians and do things to Christians that they wouldn't get away with towards anyone else? Because of our allegiance to Christ and our citizenship in his kingdom, we may end up facing situations where the world will not protect us or care for us like it might do for its own. So what should be our response to that kind of thing if we face it? So clear here. God's word is so simple and so doable. He doesn't say when you face that sort of thing, go change the world. He doesn't say that. He says right here, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So it's not that there's nothing to do in the face of everything going on. No, here actually is a, here's, a, here's an action item. From the perspective of the Holy Spirit, here's what God wants us to do. Whatever else might be happening out there, we can make sure that we're keeping ourselves away from the desires that arise from our bodies and our fallen human nature, fleshly lusts, desires that come from our orientation, sinful passions. In fact, we should understand that those desires actually wage war against who we really are. I take Peter's mention of our soul here, he uses that word soul, to mean something like our true identity. Our world tells us that those desires are our true identity, doesn't it? That, that those desires are the deepest part of who we are. But Peter says, actually, no, they're not. They're not that at all. There's a much deeper part of you than just what you crave. A much more fundamental you. And these desires wage war against who you really are. And your soul, the immaterial part of you, your soul and your body redeemed by Christ working together to glorify God, that's who you really are. These desires want to fight against you and God's purposes for you. So action item, abstain from those desires. Keep yourself from falling under their power. Cut off anything that puts them in the driver's seat. Stay away from anything that lets those desires lead you into something defiling or dishonoring. That will enable us to actually do what Peter says in verse 12. If you look at verse 12. Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. So this is, this is key here. I've been thinking about, I'm sure you have too, all the bad press Christians are getting in the news. 
There's a lot of it, right? How should we respond? How do we respond to all that bad press? We should keep our conduct honorable, Peter says, so that the people who don't follow Christ can see what Jesus really can do in a human life. If they lie about Christians, we need to make sure those lies aren't true about us personally. It's important. We've all had times when someone didn't follow Christ, called us out on something. You get mad. And then a day later, you're like, oh, he's right. I am a jerk. (laughs) Right? It's really humiliating when someone who doesn't even know what they're talking about actually points out that it can happen and we need to be humble and we need to repent, right? So we need to make sure even when people are lying about Christians, that those things aren't actually true about us personally. When you hear about Christians being racist or power-hungry or hateful towards women or hateful in general, you can just take it to the Lord. You can go to your closet and you can say, God, are any of these things true about me? I'm not perfect, right? Lord, help me. And if in the honesty of your soul before God, you know the Holy Spirit's not pointing out any ways you actually are those things. What you get up and do then is not post about it or shout about it or march about it or even organize about it. We're not Marxists, okay? We don't wage war with the weapons of the world. God's tools are stronger than Satan's guns. No, we listen to the voice of God in Peter's letter. What we do is we clear our lives of fleshly lusts. We go back to, the, back to the basics. And we get back to the work of doing righteous things in righteous ways everywhere we go, wherever that leads us. And maybe it'll lead us to big things. Maybe it'll lead us to small things. Maybe it leads us to sit on the local school board or even run for office. That's fine. But whatever we do, it's going to be what Peter's writing about here. Just the same. It's going to be honorable conduct, among the people who don't know God. And the result of that is the next thing that Peter writes. He says that when they speak against you as evildoers, pause. So this honorable conduct won't stop the world from thinking and saying rough things about us. Christians can expect to be called evildoers. I think you get the gist of what Peter's saying here. Uh, No one's actually going to use that term today. It sounds like Rocky and Bullwinkle or something, right? Uh, You're probably never actually going to be called an evildoer. It's like something from a 1950s movie about Robin Hood or something. So what's Peter saying to us? When they say that Christians cause harm, when they say you make transgender people commit suicide, when they say you cause the Crusades and the Dark Ages, when they say you're against women's rights, when they say you're setting the clock back 50 years or that you're bad for business, when they say you violate corporate policy or students' rights or the First Amendment or that you're religiously intolerant or whatever else they come up with next week, right? When they speak against you as people whose views and words and actions are bad for society and evil, the Holy Spirit is telling us what to do here. We keep ourselves clean of sinful lusts and we keep doing the things that God told us to do in private, like Jesus said, in our closet, so to speak. And right out in the open, like Jesus said, the city set on a hill that no one can keep hidden. Peter's channeling the words of his Lord here for us. Look at the next thing he says. They may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So keep your conduct honorable. In other words, don't be doing evil things and do the right thing and be doing good things. And then even when it's normal to speak openly against Christians, 
there will be some people who see through all the lies and see the truth and end up giving glory to God. And then from verse 13 down to verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, if you scan your eyes over that passage, what Peter does is give all kinds of practical instructions for how we actually keep our conduct honorable. He doesn't try to say, say everything he couldn't in a letter like this, but he gives a few key areas of life and how to practically live this kind of life in the middle of each of those areas. In every one of them, he says that there's going to be some part of that arrangement that's difficult, some part that's painful, and can even enter into the realm of suffering. And that as followers of Christ, our response needs to be to commit to doing the right thing regardless. In verse 15, you have, he talks about the ignorance of foolish men who are saying things they shouldn't say. Our lives of patient obedience to God and even the government can put that to silence. In verse 18, you have the whole economic arrangement of servanthood and even slavery that existed in the Roman world at the time. Obviously, a lot of that was straight-up suffering, like verse 19 says. Peter says, commit to doing good regardless. That's how a Christian responds to systemic evil like they faced in Rome at that time. In verse 23, he says, that's how Jesus responded to these things. In chapter 3, verse 1, he talks about wives being married to non-believing husbands. Same direction given there. And in verse 7, he directs husbands to love their wives the same way despite whatever shortcomings they might have. And then look at chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8, Peter writes this, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For, and he quotes a psalm here, He who would love life, And see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you? Verse 13. If you become followers of what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your heart, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Look at verses 13 to 18. Why is it worth it to read all of this scripture this morning? Because look at how often Peter is writing the same things over and over again. And whenever you see something repeated in scripture, it means that it's important. And Peter is saying these things over and over again, isn't he? That means that the Holy Spirit has a word for us this morning. Are you hearing it? And here it is again. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the, will, uh, live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. 
For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness and lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Same message. And here it is again in verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So in other words, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Commit to obeying God and doing good in the world no matter what. And here's the other side of it again in verse 12. Beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be with exceeding joy. And if you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. On their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. God can handle his own reputation. Can he? On their part, he's blasphemed. But on your part, he's glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer. Don't actually be any of those things, right? Or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who don't obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Or look at chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood, not just in Philadelphia, but in the whole world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Can the Holy Spirit be any clearer than he's being for us here in Peter's letter this morning? I don't need to preach a sermon. Peter is. Isn't he? The Holy Spirit is. In these words, God is drawing near to us and giving us a very clear set of directions for the days we're living in. People are going to say horrible things about Christians. Don't let that throw you off. Instead, do what Jesus said and rejoice that you're sharing in his sufferings. And do what Jesus did. Commit to doing the will of God no matter what. And that will be a true reflection of who you really are 
And God will use our lives of patient obedience to do the work that he actually cares about. Saving men and women who need to see a flesh and blood witness to the power and grace of Jesus Christ in a world that's losing its mind. Let's pray. Father, we pray, we thank you, first of all, for your word. So clear, so powerful. You're so present in it, Lord. And I pray. Lord, I personally pray for more ears to hear your word. Lord, just a more open heart to receive it. We thank you that we don't have to praise our own perfection. What a dry thing that would be. We can look up and praise Jesus Christ. And so we do praise you this morning, Lord. Fill us with your spirit and take Peter's words and plant them in our heart and bear fruit through us, Lord, in in our hearts and minds, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and wherever else you want to take us, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.